There's a <clears throat> sheet being passed out by Luke chapter, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 21, while you're waiting for that. <clears throat> Matthew 21, I'll be reading the first 11 verses. something a little extra for you later on, Matt, okay? Ask your dad for a little money. Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. And when they drew nigh unto Jerusalem and were come to Bethpage, unto the Mount of Olives, then sent Jesus two, sent two, two, Jesus two disciples, saying unto them, Go into the village over against you, and straightway you shall find an ass tied, a, and a colt, with her, loose them, and bring them to me. And if any man say aught unto you, ye, say, ye shall say, The Lord have need of them, and straightway he will send you them. All this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell ye, daughter of Zion, behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek, and sitting upon an ass and a colt of the foal of an ass. And the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them, and brought the ass and the colt, and put their clothes on, and put, the, and put on them their clothes, and they set him thereon. And a very great multitude spread their garments in the way. Others cut down branches from the trees and strawed them in the way. And the multitudes that went before and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he was come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. Bless the word, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Your stories. A familiar one, isn't it? For as often as we think of uh, those who come to church on Christmas and Easter, Palm Sunday is often one of those that is well attended to. Uh, this triumphal entry that we've read about here is about five days before the crucifixion. It's a very important time as far as uh, the events of taking place in Jesus' life. And interesting enough, it was uh, given in all four of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And there are a number of events that in Jesus' life that's not, an, not uh, unusual. Uh, it becomes clear it is a major event uh, to the people here in Jerusalem, but also for Christians throughout history. Uh, we read here where uh, Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem wasn't upon a horse, which somebody says, well, sure, but a horse was a conquering animal one that a general or Caesar uh, would have ridden on, uh, showing a, a different attitude, a, a picture of warfare. Uh, he didn't pick a mule, which was the Jewish king's preferred 
uh, mount. Uh, David had ridden in on a mule. But as it says here, his royal mount appeared to be as a borrowed donkey's colt, a pack animal, a lowly beast of burden. The prophet Isaiah presents unto us a picture as he had to all those at that time, five centuries before Christ, said that Messiah would come humbly and bringing peace. Hence the animal that was provided there. He enters into Jerusalem and he really, as riding in this animal, makes a public claim of his messiahship, of his kingship. Um, Zechariah's words were, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding upon an ass and upon a colt, the foal of an ass. Five centuries before. It didn't mean that Jesus said, well, I'm going to make this whole thing up and I'm going to look for the certain animal so that I'll fulfill this prophecy. But that's exactly the picture that was taking place. This is quite an event. It was Passover, one of the feasts of the Jews. Seven days event it took place and it was required for all males to attend. It was a commemoration of Israel's liberation from Egypt by God after 400 years of slavery under the Egyptians. You remember the Passover events, the things that took place. Moses and Aaron coming to Pharaoh and demanding, let my people go. And with every refusal, there was a plague that was placed upon Egypt. Water turned to blood. There were frogs and lice and swarms of flies and boils and locusts and hail. Animals were diseased and then darkness for three days and then the tenth, the death of the firstborn. Firstborn were the object of the angel of death as it passed over. And if the blood of the spotless lamb of the sacrifice was not placed upon the doorpost, it took the life of the firstborn of that household, whether it was the lowest servant or the highest in the land, the firstborn of the Pharaoh of Egypt. So as the people flocked to Jerusalem on Passover, they had that in mind. It was a liberation picture, a freedom picture. Um, Jerusalem's population normally was about 50,000. And for every festival, it usually overflowed to about three times that amount. So you can imagine the city uh, bustling and hustling with all types of things taking place. There was no doubt the thinking, I believe, as they came, that God did it before, why not do it again? After you read a lot of the scriptures and the expectations from the Old Testament, it seemed to be an obvious conclusion. After all, Egypt controlled Israel for 400 years, and now the Romans are controlling Israel. Why can't a new king come in and, and release us? I mean, that seemed to be logical. Moses brought about the release, actually it was God, but they saw Moses at it, as it, through his miracles, and here's Jesus performing many miracles. And it wasn't too many days before that he raised Lazarus from the dead. What more powerful miracle could that have been displayed? These Jews had an expectation that Jesus was to be their king, that he would dethrone the Romans. He would take Israel and put them in their rightful place in, in the world's history as they once were 
And, and this is all going to take place, again, uh, amazingly enough, at the time of Passover. Can you imagine how this all looked? There were many who followed them from Bethany, where he stayed the night before. Bethany, where Lazarus was raised from the dead, and they're following him out. And then the people coming from Jerusalem, they see him coming with these crowds, and they're flowing out. And all of them, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, they're shouting. Save us. I pray, save us. That's what the words were presenting to him in his ears. The scene must have been reminiscent of those conquerors, generals, and princes as they're honored coming into the city. They would throw garlands in the way, you know, mention them about taking their clothes and putting them upon the animal or laying them down in the streets, that the palm branches waving. In these dusty roads, you're not going to have a conquering king or a general come in. So they laid them down to keep the dust down. It was a, it was a, a multitude of voices and sights that were all blending together. And as I read this, I can't help but feel that Jesus' own personal entourage, <laughs> the twelve, were pulled along with it, which was uh, typical for these men. They saw the things taking place, and they, they just kind of, boy, this is it, this is it, this is our time, and they just flowed along with the group. In John's account, we read, The Pharisees therefore said amongst themselves, Perceive ye how ye, how ye prevail nothing? Behold, the world has gone after him. They detested Christ. They detested all the attention he was getting and all the things that took place prior to this. And yet, they give us a, a, a first-hand account of what they saw. The crowds following after him. It was an actual explosion of population. Before we go any further, I want us just to take a few moments to look at the events of the week. We have the four accounts that are listed here in uh, the Gospels. I apologize in that the print is small, um, and if your eyes are not as focused as they ought to be, be sure to take them home and uh, go through it at that time. I just want to point out a few events that have taken place <clears throat> here that are listed. Uh, Friday, we see on the far left, and I'm going to have to even pick it up because it's a small for me, um, the eighth of Nisan, and uh, noted there at the within the top section there, this is the day that Mary anointed the feet of Jesus. Preparation for those things that are still to come. The second over Saturday, uh, this is the Sabbath uh, spent Jesus spent in Bethany, um, and we recognize that uh, relationship there uh, with uh, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Uh, the third run over, the 10th of Nisan, uh, the first day of the week. And here we have the triumphal entry. And then right under the little section there, um, pointing to day, uh, the little parenthetical uh, section, it says that Jesus enters the temple, uh, he cleanses it, and uh, he returns back to Bethany. So following this triumphal entry, Jesus goes in and cleans house once again. Uh, uh, he had done this one time before at the beginning of his ministry. Uh, he does it once again. The next line over on Monday, uh, Jesus has cursed the fig tree 
And then that time of, there's the time of the cleansing of the temple. Uh, number five, um, or uh, number five, I'm sorry. The 12th of Nisan uh, on Tuesday, uh, Peter sees the withered fig tree and Jesus uh, goes and walks in the temple. There's times of teaching. Uh, his authority is questioned. We get the widow's might there. Uh, Wednesday, the 13th of Nisan, uh, here's where Judas comes and he uh, makes an agreement with the, uh, the spiritual leaders. And this is the time of the betrayal of Jesus. Uh, under that, under the line, the day and night section here, you'll see the Last Supper during the uh, nighttime hours preceding the daytime hours. This is before the Feast of Passover, and we know the events that had taken place there. Uh, right next to that, uh, after the supper, Jesus was with his disciples, went to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's betrayed by Judas. He's arrested, taken to the high priest Caiaphas, and so forth. And then the very lower section there, uh, Pilate said to the Jews, here is your king, and ask uh, Barabbas uh, to be released instead of the others. And the rest is natural. I, I encourage you this week at your devotional time, take the day that's going on um, and, and note everything that's above that little day-night uh, line that's there. It is the scriptural fulfillment uh, note again on the 14th of Nisan, this is the time when the Passover lamb is killed. Who is also killed? You see? So it's a beautiful merging of the things that Jesus had performed, uh, little that we think about, but it's all provided for us there. Um, there are a lot of events that occurred in this particular week, and there are some of them that we don't necessarily think about as being in this week. It was a very busy week. It was a week of teaching. It was his final opportunities to put all things in place. Uh, some of the events that occurred here, we think of other times in the Bible, but no, they occurred in this particular week. So when you think about it, the week began, um, Palm Sunday, with a tremendous amount of optimism. Yeah, and and you, you, just, you could feel it with the crowds. You can think about it as the things that took place. Uh, Jesus' authority, you know, even going into the temple and tipping over the tables and cleaning house there. It had to show them that there was a lot of things that were going on. And then also with the, uh, the resurrection or the bringing back to life of Lazarus um, and the crowds going with him, again, as Passover nonetheless. Yet in analyzing the days of this week, that optimism didn't last. You know, the great anticipation, all the things that are there. Um, baseball season has started, and every, the teams that are you know, undefeated right now with two games or three games, and they're all on the radio talking, yeah, we're going all the way, and three months down the road, yeah, they're all a bunch of bums, you know. So it is in life, and so it is here. We find the situation has completely changed. Some of these and the crowds that came out of Bethany and came from Jerusalem crying for Hosanna, save us, could very well have been amongst the crowds who called out at the end, crucify him. We don't know, but they could have been the same people. The optimism changed. The heart's attitude changed. They went with the crowds. We find in this week betrayals and acts of cowardice. 
There's Judas. <laughs> the most obvious, even the name Judas brings forth uh, an entire picture of betrayal and, and failure in the flesh as it took place with him. And we can't forget Peter when we mention this. He was with the Lord at the Last Supper, and he told Jesus, Lord, I am ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. You know, his optimism kind of boiled over into a different direction. He, Peter is always the first one to go in, first one to do things, the first one to, to grab a hold of a, a shining moment. Peter actually was the one who drew his sword in the Garden of Gethsemane, cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest. It would seem that he probably had a missed uh, alignment there. He probably meant to kill the man. But by the grace of God, he just cut his ear off, at which Jesus put that uh, back uh, healed once again. And yet, this is the same man who shamefully denied the Lord three times. As he awaited during the trial, and the maid came up to him and he says, aren't you, aren't you, aren't you? And three times he denied it very, very vulgarly at, at the end, you know, changed his life. Still, the others weren't too far behind, Peter and Judas. In the Gospel of Mark, let me read a little passage here, chapter 14. This is at the time of the arrest of Jesus. And they all forsook him and fled. We think of, you know, a few you know, around the area, but and they all forsook him. There's a rest going out. The zeal of being the conquerors, we're here for all the way to the end. We'll fight to the end. And all of a sudden, they all fled. Now, listen to this part. And followed him a certain young man, having a linen cloth cast about his naked body. And the young man laid a hold on him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. Now, who do you think that was? Who's the author of the book? Mark. Mark's a young man who's standing back watching the things that are going on, and he just grabs something at the time, you know, just threw a bedsheet around himself, and he's watching the arrest and all the things that are there. And the guys are saying, hey, look at him. And they go over and they grab him, pulled his sheet off, and he takes off naked. Uh, he's not going to mention his name because this is his book, but he wants to mention the cowardice that was part and parcel of his life at this time. And then on the day of the resurrection, we read in John 20, 19, then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut and the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and said unto them, Peace be unto you. They were hiding. They were cowards. They arrested him and they crucified him. What are we going to do? Let's go. And they get into the room and they close up the windows and they close the doors and they lock themselves in. And, and, and what? You know, this grand optimism, this grand cheering, you know. Hallelujah. Praise God. The, the, the king is here. It took a resurrected Jesus to appear in that room, bring him back to reality. And to be honest with you, from that day on, they were no longer cowards. They were men who boldly proclaimed the gospel of Christ. 
not for fear of their life or anything else, they went forth with great boldness and not betrayers of the truth. Kindly put a ribbon around this, if you would, things we've talked about so far. We'll come back to it. Lord willing to make some application with it. But I want you to look at one verse in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 12. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 12. The Apostle Paul rewriting the church in Corinth. It's his church. Some situations are going on. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Look what he says. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Wherefore, meaning the things he's talked about so far up to this point, let the person who thinks he's standing be careful. Take heed lest he fall. Paul's writing this letter to the Corinthian church. The church had a bunch of serious issues. One is which the false notion that the membership, because they partook of baptism and partook of the Lord's Supper, that they were immune from sin. They were immune from falling. They felt that their relationship with the Lord is secure and thought that and believed and held to the dangerous picture that they were safe when in fact they were on the very precipice and the very edge of terrible things. Wherefore... Let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. Some weeks ago we were going through Psalm 19, if you remember, in the Psalm of David. And he gives this portion of prayer. He says, keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Boy, David's a great man for thinking of that. A presumptuous sins is probably the most dangerous sin for the believer's life. Presuming a position presuming a state, presuming a status, when in fact that presumption is nothing more than what is a fleshly weakness. Think of the crowds there on Palm Sunday. Their presumptive sin was the fact that Jesus was going to make them king. He was going to be king and he was going to make that nation a top nation once and again. They had everything because they were the children of God. They were Israel. And now they turn to this other side and they says, Jesus is here and we've got it all made. We've got it all taken care of. We're going to be in the glory again, the glories that we had at other days. And the disciples, their presumption was almost as bad as the crowds. There are occasions you read the Gospels and they were arguing amongst themselves, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? You know, we're with Jesus we're his entourage, you know, and, and we're learning. And, and we've, we've got a feeling that, you know, we know it all. And therefore they were arguing. There's even a time when Mama steps in and two of the disciples and Mama comes along and he says, well, Lord, who's going to sit on your right hand or left hand? You know, my boy's here. <laughs> who's going to do it? Their whole heart, their presumptive attitude was, we're in the inner circle and we're somebody special. And... Troubles came. They all forsook him. And then Peter, what an example he set. Remember, he vocalized that, that presumption, you know, 
Lord, you know, I'll, I'll go to the death. I'll go to prison, whatever it takes for that. I'm ready to go, he thought, but he was about to fall. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. In this verse to the Corinthians and to all of us, Paul is warning against becoming complacent in our Christian walk. Being overconfident that we think that we're exempt from falling into sin. Or that we don't necessarily truly understand the significance and the dangers of spiritual sin and the consequences of sinning simply because we're born again. We get into a position of life and say, I'm a child of God, but we don't even think about how dangerous sin is, how horrible it is, what else it leads us into simply because we're saved. We are certainly privileged to be saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, We've been freed from the curse of the law by his sacrificial death and by his resurrection from the dead. But because we have had such a privileged position in Christ and the freedom to enjoy our Christian walk at times, that places us ripe for fall. It places me in a a position to say, I can't be touched. I can taste this and I'm a child of God and I can Go no further. Philip's paraphrase of this verse says, So let the man who feels sure about his standing today be careful that he does not fall tomorrow. Think of an Old Testament character. I think of Samson. God chose this man, called him a Nazarite, service to God, a couple things that he wasn't supposed to do. But all of a sudden, the man who was uh, you know, nobody could defeat him. The armies of the Philistines, there, there's nobody could do it. And it wasn't a matter of his hair, but it was a matter of his disobedience. But it became as a weakness to women. He had this one, and he had this one, and this one. And finally, Delilah became the, uh, the one who found in this relationship with his Lord, hair is cut, had his eyes gouged out, and he died such a death. Or David, a king, A man after God's own heart, a psalmist. He was invincible spiritually until he got to the edge of his house and he looked over the wall and he sees beautiful Bathsheba bathing down there. And then all of a sudden, his invincibility was kind of pushed to the side. He he felt overconfident, self-confident, and he makes a plan that ends up in disaster with the death of his son, with the death of of, of, of her husband, all placed upon his position. Brian Houston, founder of Hillsong Church, with 150,000 regular attendees globally in over 30 countries, was removed from his role as global senior pastor as a result of breaching their moral code. The church dismissed him because of relationships, improper relationships with two women. Carl Lentz, megachurch pastor also at Hillsong, the one-time spiritual advisor to Justin Bieber, fired from that church due to moral failures. And this was two years before the matter of Brian Houston was released. There are other names that pop up. We've read them. 
shaking our heads at times. Jim and Tammy Baker, Bill Gothard, Mark Driscoll, and dozens, dozens of others that you may have heard or may not, or even names of people within our own circles that we say, oh, wow, how did that happen? How could they have gotten to such a place? But it's not a megachurch problem or a small church problem or a Christian school problem or a seminary problem. It's a sin problem. It's just not about kings or princes. It's not about pastors or TV evangelists. It's about every child of God becoming overconfident and presuming that he or she is exempt from falling. Or at least in a position to say, I don't recognize how dangerous that is. Look on YouTube sometimes and, and watch these guys handling snakes, you know. Good night, you know, they get, oh, at least like this. And then all of a sudden, you know, and, and you get the bite and that's it. Don't realize how poison affects, how sin can take a life. And although there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, and there is no sin that cannot be forgiven, we must be extremely aware that any one of us can be tempted to fall into sin. And I'm not talking about falling out of the relationship that I have with my Lord. But we can become overconfident in and out of our spiritual walk to the danger of falling into sin becomes significantly increased. It just becomes easy to do it. When I was in the Navy, we had a, uh, up in the state of Washington, and um, had a good friend. There were three of us, and this one friend, was, his job was to work out in the flight line. And uh, you're supposed to wear these earplugs, uh, rubber ones, and then these big Mickey Mouse ears over the top of them to protect your hearing. And, and he says, I don't need that kind of stuff, you know. And he, sometimes he had them on, sometimes he'd just wear them up on his head like this, you know. And so when the three of us were about to ready to go off to other areas, um, other friend and I, we, we got together and, and there he was. And he said, where are you going to? He said, I'm getting discharged. I said, why? He said, I've lost my hearing. His, his confidence in who he was and thinking that he could know better and not take the precautions that were necessary, lost his hearing. And that was it. And sometimes as Christians, we get to the point, we become overconfident, presuming that because I'm a child of God, there's nothing that can harm me. And we look at those big things, and I've never done any of that, and I've never done any of that, and I've never touched any of that. But what about the other little things? What about the other little tiny things, you know? What about those little pebbles and stones that are so painful? We must never forget that all sin, irrespective of how we perceive it, great or small, it is a sin that dishonors God. It affects me, yes. It affects my testimony. I think of these pastors, and you know, I, I'm not jumping on, on their particular brand of church or however they do things, People are being saved, and, and, and their works go on all the way around the world, and that's fantastic. Yet what they don't realize, that it's affected their life and their marriages and their children, and it's also put them in a place where they have dishonored God. And so the danger becomes before us. 
All sin dishonors God who bought us and it grieves the Holy Spirit and is a terrible reproach to the gospel of Christ. It's, it's hard and I can't imagine how, how David faced the people of Israel with this thing with Bathsheba. I don't understand what they thought, what he had to say. Maybe he never said anything, I don't know. But how he, how he approached that. He, he was, became right with God, but what about the rest of the children of Israel? They all look to the king. They all look to these positions of responsibility and how with one sin and fall that happens. My daughter-in-law this past week uh, found something on, on uh, it's like the TikTok thing on Instagram, and uh, she posted it personal-like, and um, there were two little videos, and she says, I liked it, but I never listened to it. And the second one, she came back the next day and she says, oh, Pop, he says, I'm so sorry. He says, I didn't listen to it and there are some words in there that I'm so embarrassed over. So she took it right down, but he says, he says, over 100 people saw that, even some of the friends of my daughter. I feel so bad, you know. We sometimes don't think about the, the interaction that we have with things that maybe were no problem at all, but all of a sudden they become kind of creeping in and provide us with an opportunity to fall. Let every Christian who thinks he is standing securely take heed that we do not become careless, complacent, or smugly overconfident, lest we dishonor our Savior and fall. The fall may not be great, but it affects the lives of everybody that we're with. And yet the honor that we have being redeemed children of God is much greater. I put ourselves in this position of the people here on this, this, this week. And, and, I, and I read the events of the things that have taken place. And you know Jesus knew it all. <laughs> you know, he understood what these disciples were going to do. Judas especially, even the prophecies came out with pushed him out. But he knew that Peter was going to do that. He even told him. He knew the others would forsake him and he told him. But yet not once did he turn against them. His love for his children is ever abounding. So it brings us to a place that um, uh, to honor our Lord in thought, word, and deed. And when we have fallen small or great, we can come to him and say, Lord, forgive me. And I think that was a key in David's life. You know, his presumptive sins brought him to a place where he said, you know, Lord, I have sinned. I have done wrong. And, and God forgave him and brought back that. Don't ever allow sin to continue and rule in your life. It becomes that uh, little stone in your shoe that you should have taken out a long time ago. And before long, it becomes this big uh, uh, sore and, and wound in our foot. Uh, allow the grace of God to continue. And be mindful, as children of God, that we recognize how uh, tenuous a position that we're in. Um, that he gives us the grace to be able to see where sin is and to be careful about it, to avoid it, and to ask for forgiveness when it comes. Shall we pray? Father, we'll offer up thanks for this, uh, this week and the beautiful prophetic way that uh, our Savior, your Son, fulfilled uh, Old Testament prophecies and becoming the Lamb of God that took upon himself the sins of the world. Thank you that he did not remain 
in the tomb, but he was risen again, even as he said. And he had not only provided uh, light and life and encouragement and uh, change of ministry to those in those days, but he does also for us. And so as we recognize such a glorious relationship, uh, we pray that uh, we'll be mindful of the dangers of, of uh, presumption of overconfidence in our life. It's all about you. Uh, it's you choosing us and making us your children and providing in us uh, a ministry for the service of our great God and King, in whose name we pray. Amen.